I always say like, the menu of Red Rooster is really decided by Harlem. <laughs> Obviously we cook it. But what I mean with that is that I would say 40% of the menu is always inspired by the African-American migration. It's the soul, it's the, the base, it's the core of our restaurant. That's Marcus Samuelson, an award-winning chef, restaurateur, and cookbook author. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Marcus Samuelson is an internationally acclaimed chef who's in the middle of a legendary career. Born in Ethiopia and adopted by Swedish parents, Samuelson trained as a chef in Stockholm, Switzerland, and France. At 24, he became executive chef of Aquavit in New York City, and soon after that became the youngest ever to receive a three-star restaurant review from the New York Times. Then, in 2003, the James Beard Foundation named Marcus Samuelson New York City's best chef. Marcus served as guest chef at the White House under the Obama administration, where he planned and executed the president's first state dinner, which honored India's prime minister and 400 guests. He's often seen on celebrity cooking shows like Top Chef, Chopped, and Iron Chef. Samuelson competed against 21 other chefs in the Bravo TV series Top Chef Masters, winning the competition and donating the $115,000 prize to UNICEF, an organization he's long been associated with. Marcus Samuelson also supports Careers Through Culinary Arts Program, or CCAP, which provides career opportunities in the restaurant industries for underserved youth. Samuelson owns a number of restaurants around the world. His first, and the one closest to his heart, is the wildly successful Red Rooster Restaurant in Harlem. And on top of all of that, Marcus Samuelson's also written award-winning cookbooks and has just released another called The Red Rooster Cookbook, The Story of Food and Hustle in Harlem. Food has clearly been a driving passion in Samuelson's life, which he traces back to his family in Sweden. On my dad's side, they were all fishermen. So every summer when school was out, we went up to the village of Smögen on the west coast of Sweden. And we start, We were fishing from June to August. Uh, and not just fishing, because once you're done with the fish, you got to clean the boat. And then you got to also take care of the mackerel and the crab and the lo lobster and the cod. And that led me to preparing food, whether we smoked it, whether we cured it, whether we cooked it. And on my grandmother's side, um, she cooked every day home-cooked meals. I've never been to her house, and the first thing that hits you is the smell of food, whether it's uh, chicken stock, chicken soup on in the kitchen, whether it's freshly mushrooms that's been picked or berries on the kitchen table that needs to be picked. Uh, there was always a season for something. And... You decided to cook professionally, and you make it clear that you have to give it everything and basically sublimate yourself for a while to move through that rigid training, and it really was quite rigid. If you don't mind, I'd like you to describe what it was like being in those kitchens and the people you worked with there. I mean, my training is something that I still go off every day in my life. Because what I really got, of course I got 
to learn how to behave in a kitchen and be in a kitchen. But more than anything, I learned about to deal with different situations. Someone said something to you in French. The next person spoke German to you. The next person gave you a different challenge. I was in many diverse environments, all evolving food and hospitality. It was all done at very high level. It was all done with guest is number one. And it was all done under teamwork. And the hierarchy of the kitchen cannot be broken. During that time, I'm curious about your own creative process. How is it operating then? How is that working? Well, my creative process is, is the notepad that I've had with me through all my life, right? It, because at that point, there was no creative outlet for me. I was a number as a commie. And a commie is like an apprentice chef. Yes. A chef in training. Yeah. And every year they had about 60 commies come in, 20 got fired, 40 got to say. But no one really asked you, hey, does anyone have an idea? That wasn't the time. It was not the time for me to do, do that. The time for me there was to be a very committed commie that can deal with the task at, at hand. On my spare time, that's when I was, was the outlet for me to be creative. So very often on our days off, we cooked. And it could be the Mal Malaysian roommate that, you know, wanted to know more about Swedish herring. Or it could be our friend from South Africa that brought up, uh, you know, a dish from Cape Town. So it was these potlucks dinners that we all as chefs and commies, you know, we played card, ate, drank, and were 21 and just did stupid stuff. But we, it was through food but also the narrative where we came from. So those were our creative outlets. And we started to ask question, what if I mix this Malaysian curry with grilled turbo? Simple things like that. Everything didn't work, but it was through the session you started to think about, whoa, the world is a smaller place. What if I mix? And I'm interested in this because obviously there was a skill set that has to develop if you're going to cook professionally. Yeah. But as with many other arts it there also has to be a natural ability as well and somehow you know combining those two things and knowing when to let one rest as you say when you were in training and then when to shine the spotlight on it yeah i mean i think that cooking is this constant dialogue between artistry craftsmanship and also a long marathon right cooking is every day so it's a marathon. It's a brutal long sport in that sense, right? But you also get better as a craftsman if you stay on it. And you got to make sure that you, you don't crank it so hard so you kill your artistry. That balance is very different for each person. It's like theater in some ways. Mm -hmm. Because you have to get up there every yeah. day. And, and it's so physically taxing. Mm -hmm. I think often people don't quite realize what it's like to be in that hot kitchen. Yeah. But it's also a wonderful place of camaraderie, family. When I think about your family, your tribe, you know, cooking is a tribe. It's tribal. You could have completely different starting points in life, completely different religious or languages or political views. But in the kitchen, you're coming together because you need one another. You were executive chef at Aquavit at 24. This was a very famous restaurant. How nervous were you? I was nervous because Aquavit, the idea of Aquavit for me was how known Aquavit was in Scandinavia. And I didn't want to be the one that dragged it down to anything. That made me nervous. But also, no one operates well when they're nervous every day. You have to kind of live under this 
confident time where you feel like I can do this. And even if I didn't know everything about being a chef, I knew how to work hard and I knew I had a vision of how I wanted my food to taste like. And I went back to my times in Japan or Singapore or, or France and I knew that I wanted to pickle and preserve and smoke and use seafood and game as a cornerstone of any Scandinavian cook. But also what's in New York, so New York City gave me this allowance to be more global with my flavors. So I had this idea that I think we could start the new Scandinavian cooking for me through my lens. And that's what we did. I'd love to have you talk about developing a recipe. And we can go to Red Rooster and something that we all know, like cornbread or fried chicken. Yeah. I've never tasted either in the way that you made it. And I'm just yeah. curious how you develop that. Well, I mean, I have a lot of respect for what came before me, just as much as I respected Gravlax in Aquavit and Herring, the traditions of this. Obviously, I grew up with those two, so I had a very clear tone of what I wanted. But Aquavit, maybe my Gravlax was cured with different spices, and we did purple mustards instead, right? Cornbread and fried chicken was nothing I grew up with, so I had to come. I lived in Harlem for a long time before I opened the restaurant, and I tasted fried chicken from Sylvia's, from Charles, from Gabriel, from all the places. So I knew my what I wanted the cornbread and fried chicken to taste like. And there needed to be something that average guests could recognize, but then also there needed to be a left turn that made it ours. So very clearly in the beginning I said, okay, all our fried chicken's going to be done. Dark meat, bone in. That gives us already half of the fried chickens in Harlem without and they're now different than that. Then we marinate it different. So the way how we, we process the bird is different. And then the flour mixture and then the spice mixture. Those are sort of the ones that you can control. Then, of course, you can control the bird size. So I picked a, a bird that is not too big because I don't want too much water content. So I look at it very much from a traditional point of view, but then also how can I improve from there, right? And cornbread is the same thing. Like I wanted this idea that it was sweet, almost like a pound cake, but yet salty, so it would work on this sweet and savory section, right? So that's just by tasting a lot, and a lot of the food is inspired by the migration. I didn't grow up through that. I, that's not my experience, but I was inspired by it. But the fact that I didn't grow up around it allows us to reference it, but not cook exactly like if it would have been for Virginia or if it would have been from North Carolina. Now, what goes into making an excellent neighborhood restaurant that's a first-class dining experience, but is still a neighborhood restaurant? Yeah. Again, that's a juggling act. Yeah, I mean, I think American food and urban American food, if you think about the cities, when I came to the States, you know, you basically had New York, San Francisco, Chicago, that had incredible food. But now every city in America has really good food and that's fantastic and so the development of a neighborhood restaurant over the last 15 years has been incredible so that the guest the consumer demands good food wherever they live whether they live in orlando or they live in berkeley right and that's great so we knew that the quality of the guests and the foods were there so now it was really okay how do we create trust from the neighborhood and the community? And that for me came down to allowing walk-ins to come in because pretty quickly we realized we had three customers. 
We had the visitor that was from either Kansas or Stockholm or Paris, and they very much booked Red Rooster online. That third day, second day when they're in New York. Then you had the New Yorker that was still pretty traditional that called or maybe booked online, but it was a, it was a night out. We're going uptown and we might go to the studio museum or the Apollo. And then thirdly was the Harlemite that said, hey, this is my neighborhood. I'm not making a reservation in my own neighborhood. Why would I do that? Which perfectly makes sense, right? So it was really about understanding the three behavior of customers and allowing all three to be celebrated at the same time. What goes into putting an entire menu together? Well, I always say like the menu of Red Rooster is really decided by Harlem. Obviously we cook it. But what I mean with that is that I would say 40% of the menu is always inspired by the African-American migration. It's the soul, it's the, the base, it's the core of our restaurant. 40-50% has that inspiration. It's Harlem, it should have. Then, as Harlem is moving constantly, El Barrio east of us, Puerto Rican based, but also Mexican now. So there are a lot of dishes that has both Puerto Rican influence, but also Mexican influence. Then... Harlem is also a place for immigrants, other immigrants. So I'm an immigrant. So a lot of the food has inspiration from immigrants. Like there's a West African community in Harlem. There is a Jewish community in Harlem. There's always been an Italian-American community in Harlem. That's why we'll always have several dishes that has an Italian spin on it. So that is how I think through the menu. Constantly juxtaposition these things. Physically, the way Red Rooster looks. There was a look that you were going for. If you want to go out for a dining experience, it is a perfectly logical place to go. And if you want to go in and sit down and have a meal, it's a perfectly logical place to go. What were you thinking when you put it together? I thought a lot about Lenox Avenue and how we can celebrate this iconic boulevard. And I wanted the kitchen to be the theater. So this stage that pulls you in. So this light, this open fire that you see, whether you're outside Lennox and looking in. So the focal points are really the big bar. So it says, hey, yeah, you're welcome. And it's not a service bar. It's a bar that whether you have a ginger ale or a cocktail in the middle of the day, you are welcome. So it, it's a moving piece, right? The bar is big and things happening. And then you come into the dining room and you constantly the dialogue of energy people going downstairs to the supper club. So it's very transparent. It's not, when I started working in a restaurant, everything was closed up. You were not supposed to see the kitchen. The dining room was behind the, the curtain, so to speak. The service bar was over here. Everything was hush hush, you're not supposed to see. So we built the opposite of that. We built a very transparent restaurant where you can see the chefs, you can see into the dishwash pit, and you can constantly be connected to the energy in the bar. The Red Rooster also has live music every night. Yeah. And you also have art that changes regularly. What went into that decision? I feel like we're inspired by Harlem. And when I think about Harlem as a culture, iconic neighborhood, music and art, it's very upfront and centered. The, our art and our music, it's not based on what's popular. It's part of the piece. Right now we have an art exhibit by Miss Lana Turner that is her clothing exhibit, clothing that she's been wearing for the last 40 years. She is a major figure in our community, so it fits. We're gonna then after that gonna go into Gordon Parks, but we also have art from 
Ebony Patterson to Lorna Simpson to just iconic figures that's been part of the Harlem artistic scene for a long, 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 long time. Whether they worked at Studio Museum or they sold art down the street. Musically, same thing. You know, when we walk in a neighborhood where so much of coming to the Apollo, coming to Harlem to play and perform was a big deal, still is a big deal. So to honor that, I felt like having the music experience really sets the tone on how you dine and celebrate in this place. We're competing with different things today that we didn't compete with before. Uh, the tension span of people not being on their smartphones. So sometimes you need an interruption like music said, when you dine with us, put your phone down, uh, be social, be seen, talk to your neighbor. And I have to say, I did not see a smartphone out Yeah, no. We have a phone booth downstairs. So if you want to do it, go downstairs to the phone booth. You know, I sat at the chef's table so I could see straight into the kitchen. And when the music came on, I saw that not just the customers, but the floor staff and the kitchen staff immediately started moving and nodding to the music as they worked. Yeah, you mentioned it before, theater and restaurant are hand in hand. And that's why theater people very often work in restaurant and they're fabulous at it because it's just another stage. So I think that allowing our, our guests and allowing our staff to enjoy all the experiences is important because we want to be an upbeat place. Days like yesterday, it's, it's hard days. It's hot. It's July in, in, in New York. It's rainy and stormy. But once you're inside, it doesn't matter. You're welcome. You come in, forget all your troubles of the day, and start celebrating. When you were coming up, having a black executive chef was far and few between. Still is. Still is. And so I'm wondering, now that you're in a position with multiple restaurants, what you can do and do do to try to tip the balance at least a little bit. Well, I mean, I've gone from being the mentee to the mentor, and that relationship is very important to see what can we provide. Right. So I do that in several facets. Right. Multi restaurant is one way to provide multiple places for young people of color, young women of color, young chefs in general to get a chance to be exposed. Number two, CCAP, career through culinary arts, working really, really hard, making sure that inner city schools gets into our field. It's a great field. And then constantly being a restaurant of teaching, right, and giving opportunities. So young chef Tristan that is there works at us. He just came back from working six months in Sweden. We're sending another kid that never had a passport to work in a restaurant in Bermuda. You know, give these guys a year or 18 months or so, and they're going to become executive chefs. So what comes out of Red Rooster is just as important as what goes into the Red Rooster. And being in Harlem, I feel like it's a perfect platform to train and focus on youth and talent, but specifically young inner city chefs of color and give them the platform and the opportunity to become chefs. Now, if they don't make it, at least you can pull them back in and say, hey, here's a second opportunity. Then it's really up to them. But it says two messages. Hey, here's a place to aspire to and here's a place of learning. And the more we have of that, the better. And 
I have to ask you, because of the way you were trained, where it was chef and a rigid hierarchy, how do you run your kitchen? I'm responsible for under 60, like 165 employees at the restaurant and 700 total in all the restaurants. Uh, so hierarchy is important. You can't run it the way I was coming up. And that's a good thing. You know, we don't throw pots and pans at our junior young cooks anymore. No one's get punched in the walk-ins anymore. And I don't suggest that those things were great stuff. I'm glad that that stuff is sort of the dark days of running a kitchen like that are behind us. But discipline and being focused in a kitchen will always be important because it's a dangerous workplace. When stuff comes out of that fryer, it's hot. When something comes out of a steamer, you have to say behind because it's hot. So part of the hierarchy comes becomes is there because it's a very dangerous workplace where people in different skill sets and experiences are working in a very fast pace. And the only way to do that is to have one boss. You have 700 employees, you say? About. About, yeah. How do you keep the focus? They're putting out food in your name. How do you make sure that that's a first-class dining experience? Well, it's very hard. But first of all, I don't do it by myself. There's teamwork. Anybody that does what we do without, the first thing they would say is, I am no one without my team. So then it's about creating environments that incredible talented team member wants to work within because it's a diverse environment, because it's fun, because it's energetic, because it's cross borders, because it's uplifting, because hopefully what we do brings out the best of each other when we make mistakes. You know, all of those things, because it's about culture, because it's about people, because it's about hospitality. That's what we, we do, whether it's in London or Stockholm or Gothenburg or Bermuda or Harlem. So my team in Stockholm is led by other people that have worked at Red Rooster. And what about you? How, how often can you get in the kitchen and, and cook? I try to spend half my time in the kitchen. Uh, it's obviously very hard, but I also have to trust the, the training process. I certainly think I want Sid and Tristan at Red Roost to fight through themselves because it's part of the learning. So it's, you have to trust the process that you've put into place. And that is the most important thing when you are a chef at this point for me is to training, 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 having them go through adversity, which every chef's going to go through, and then come out of that like, hmm, Actually, I know how to solve that now because I have the support from the team. And I made a mistake here, but you know what? I'm not going to make that mistake again. I love to talk to the, the chefs about that special didn't work. Boy, were we wrong. But this is what we came out of instead. And that's much better. Some of the best dishes ever in the history of cooking comes out of mistakes. We have to remember that. Yeah, of course. You're a chef with such rigorous training. How do, how do you balance your creativity with that rigor? How does that work together? Well, I wouldn't be the person I am without creativity. And it's very challenging, but it's also what makes life so good and sticky. There's a couple of processes that I go through when I think about creativity. I think about it through food. I always think about it's like a crescendo. You want to build this up, and then you want to drop it, and then you... You want it to be very contradicting and have complexity. But for the guest, it should just be like one bite. 
but there's a lot of things that needs to happen in there. And that's a, my creative process. When I think about it, like being from Ethiopia, growing up in Scandinavia, living in Harlem, there's a lot of contradictions and complexities and all that. So the creativity follows my experience. You know, and, and Marcus, I'm just so curious because you are so good about walking that line of honoring traditions yeah. and moving moving forward, yes. not being stuck. Yeah. What goes into achieving that balance? I think it's many things. First of all, I lived in seven different countries, right? And I mean that in the sense of, so I've been uprooted many times. And for that specific thing that you were asking about, that could be helpful because I've seen things from many different point of views. Whether you're in Africa or whether you're in Scandinavia or whether you're in Switzerland, it's different than the lens from France. I've seen many different things and I've seen many different ethnicities caring about things, but they express it differently. Doesn't mean that one does it better than the other. If you think about the word restaurant, it goes back to me to the word what restaurant means. It means to restore a community. And you do think about that, right? Because restaurant jobs can't be outsourced. Very few jobs can be outsourced in a restaurant. So you have this incredible opportunity to bring in people from the community, service, cooks, hosts, etc., vegetables, farms, local fish from the community. And you can then present it to the locals and it kind of had to be checked by the locals first. And then both the restaurant and the locals said, hey, this is our place. We built this together. Once you've created that, which is very rare for a restaurant, but once you created that, it's magic. Marcus, thank you for giving me your time. I so appreciate it. Thank you. That's Marcus Samuelson, an award-winning chef, restaurateur, and author. You can find the Red Rooster in Harlem at Lenox Avenue off 125th Street. Marcus Samuelson also recently published The Red Rooster Cookbook, the story of food and hustle in Harlem. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Thank you.